2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 to 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you. Um, does anybody know the word Ulster? U L S T E R. Anybody know what that means? What it refers to? Fried ulsters. Nobody's heard the word Ulster ever. Yeah, it's it's North Ireland. It's a, it's another word for the country of North Ireland or the yeah country part of the UK today. This is um, a sculpture located there in, in a town called Derry in Northern Ireland. It's called Hands Across the Divide. That's what the, the sculptor, Maurice Heron, uh, named it. It was um, placed in its location in 1992. And it symbolized the reconciliation in a long-running ethnic, nationalist, religious conflict um, that really tore up North Ireland or Ulster uh, for decades. It was known in, in Ireland and the British Isles as the Troubles. They still call it that. One side wanted uh, continued union between North Ireland and the UK, of which it was part. The other side, the so-called Irish nationalists, or sometimes the Republicans, as they were also known, they wanted North Ireland, Northern Ireland to be independent from the UK and to join with Ireland proper, the southern, you know, Ireland, Ireland, where Dublin is. Overlaying all that was a religious component, as there often is in human, long-running human con, uh, conflicts. The Irish nationalists who were Catholic typically opposed the Ulster Protestants, who had centuries before come over from Scotland. This is the Scots-Irish, as a colonial, kind of an imperial move on the part of, of, of Britain centuries prior. And the Ulster Protestants supported the presence of British troops who walked around and were in tanks and carrying firearms and enforcing that, that annexation to the UK. For decades, bombs went off, terrorist acts were in the news. If you're my age, you'll remember that. That's what terrorism pretty much meant. You know, um, and, and that's the news we got about terrorism mostly uh, before 9-11. It was North Ireland. There was guerrilla warfare. Nearly 4,000 human beings were killed. Finally ended in the 1990s, and that sculpture there is meant to symbolize reconciliation and unity. You can see the two people um, shaking hands across the divide. How do humans achieve reconciliation? Christians, Paul writes, are basically involved in a ministry 
of reconciliation. And sermon-wise, this is the third lesson today in a short series on what we've been calling the rudiments or the basics of this ministry of reconciliation, to which we're all called as followers of Jesus. Last week we began surveying the dimensions of that ministry. We looked at the human-to-God dimension, right? Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. God was thereby reconciling us as sinners, covering our sin Himself, paying the price for our sin Himself in Jesus on the cross so that He might reconcile us to Himself. That's the human-to-God dimension of this reconciliation. And it comes through new creation, which was inaugurated with the death and resurrection of Jesus. But there's another effect of sin. Beyond alienating us from God is this discord or alienation between human beings and among groups of human beings. And so today we're going to turn our attention to this human-to-human dimension of uh, reconciliation. The human-to-human dimension of this ministry of reconciliation. And we need to begin by developing further, kind of augmenting a point that we made kind of superficially last week. We need to revisit it and expand it a little bit. And that is that the story almost begins with sin. I mean, page two of your Bible, or three, depending on your pagination. Um, it's, it's an early part of the plot. We get this glimpse of, of, of paradise before things for a hot second. I don't know how long it lasted, but it, it, it didn't get a lot of paragraphs before Humans using their volition that God gave them out of love to make choices don't choose God, they choose sin. And sin replaces that original harmony among human beings with alienation. Alienation. And alienation begun, uh, began, and it still begins often, as, as kind of lighter, a lighter thing, just tension. Um, and it's only between individuals often in the beginning. And you see this in Genesis chapter 3, 9 through 12, after the sin, after the fall in the garden when they'd eaten the tree, the, from the fruit of, of the tree that was prohibited, the only one in all the garden. And they're hiding themselves from the Lord, Adam and Eve are. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. Remember earlier, they were naked and not ashamed. The text points that out. But sin brings in shame. And, and Adam says to God, and I hid myself. Hiding himself from God. So you already see a wedge, right? Where there was unity and harmony between God and humanity. Now there's a wedge. He's hiding himself. He's kind of unreconciling himself or, or whatever. Bringing about the need for reconciliation, I should say. Notice this, though. Verse 12 goes beyond that. It says that the man said, when God says, have you eaten of the tree that I told you you're not to eat of? Adam's response isn't just yes, it's the woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Now a big point isn't made of that here, but I think looking back on that through the, through the, rest, the lens of the rest of Scripture and our own experience, we know that the minute we start to weaken our connection with God, the minute we start to hide, as it were, from God, that's a vertical problem, we begin to open ourselves up to problems with other people. It's going to happen inevitably. So we begin to develop this self-righteousness. I didn't do it. The woman you gave me did it. One of the most insidious sins is self-righteousness. Um, 
Because it looks righteous. It looks like religion. It looks faithful and sound. And really it's a form of pride that is arguably the worst sin in the Bible. Or at least one of the most intractable. But with the self-righteousness comes blame shifting, scapegoating, the woman you gave me. So you've got right there the kernel of alienation. But this little dark kernel, this alienating potential that sin brings, often goes much further than just a little tension or a problem between a couple of people in a marriage or something like that. It expands beyond mere tension to include ruthless vengeance, as the subsequent pages of, of, of Genesis tell us. And it goes beyond the individual relationship to engulf whole populations of people. So that whole people groups, tribes, nations, races, ethnicities, countries begin getting involved in these long-running hatreds and people learn to exploit other populations and oppress them and violence results. And that's basically world history. We read about it in our Bibles, we see it on the news and hear it in our history books. As noted last week by Genesis 6, the whole world is consumed in violence, so much so that God does the reset of Noah's flood. And if you read on further in the Bible, the narrative tells us that God, of course, who doesn't leave us to, to uh, you know, founder on our own, raises up Israel, the nation of Israel, so as through them to bring redemption to all the peoples of the world. But how does the Bible characterize the relationship between Jews and these other nations, Jews and Gentiles, stretching back through time? In Ephesians chapter 2.13, we find a very telling phrase from Paul's pen. He calls it kind of netting out the relationship between Jews and all the rest of the nations of the world throughout history, there's a dividing wall of hostility. A dividing wall of hostility. Could you state more redundantly and profoundly what alienation involves? If you follow it out on its trajectory, there's division and there's often hostility. And it's like a wall. And if we really are, are, are you know, mature enough to face the music, which we often, adults often are not. Um, all you gotta do is listen to a free radio programs or watch a few news programs. History shows us that rivalries and conflicts between people groups are typical. These aren't outliers or unicorns, this is the norm. We lionize the people who lead these kinds of movements against somebody else, they're, they're heroes. But sinful humanity does this, and it's not limited to people who are godless. This is very typical of those who have claimed the name Christian throughout history. You can look at race relations in American history and how that is overlaid with religion, because religion has a lot to say about race and ethnicity in the Bible, among the most central things of which is that God of one blood made every human being. And that in eternity, it'll be every tribe, tongue, people, nation. The Bible has a lot to say about that. But over two centuries, white Americans enslaved many black Americans. Beginning in the early to mid-1600s and running up through 1865. Civil War finally ends that. Civil War and Reconstruction. Reconstruction ended in 1877. But African Americans endure another hundred years, nearly of Jim Crow law, in case you don't remember what that was from your history class, that's southern state legislatures basically de facto working to undercut the U.S. Constitution, namely the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, but the earlier ones too, the Bill of Rights, so that 
people were not allowed to leave the plantation where they were enslaved. They're not slaves on paper anymore, they can't be, but you have to have a, a permission slip to, you can't be a detached person from the land. Sounds like slavery. In fact, historians have said Jim Crow was slavery by another name. They, basic, you know, public segregation got the most play. You have to sit here or sit up there in the lesser seats or something like that because of your skin color. But there was all kinds of denying of basic constitutional rights, like voting. Not allowed to vote. That's why there are all those voting drives in the civil rights movement. You weren't allowed to sit on a jury if a white person was being tried. Doesn't sound like the Constitution, does it? You weren't allowed to operate a business in the main central business district. There was the black business district all over the South. Banks practicing redlining. I mean, just on and on and on. Um, can't use, the Second Amendment doesn't apply to you. Not allowed to carry a firearm. Everybody else is. And on and on and on. hundred years of that after slavery ended. I'm giving you that context so that to set up this next quote, and I want to talk about how this implicates our allegiance or, or alleged allegiance sometimes to the gospel, all of it. Not just the individual part, but all of it. In 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. was jailed in Birmingham, in the Birmingham City Jail, because he participated in a nonviolent demonstration against segregation. And when he's in jail, he reads this in a newspaper article, an article written by eight, I think, um, moderate clergymen, they called themselves southern clergymen of different denominations, who basically are reprimanding him for that kind of movement because it's disorderly. And here's his response, called The Letter from the Birmingham City Jail. Some of you I know have read it because we've talked about it. I've quoted it in the past. I don't know if I've quoted this passage, but here's what he says. I must confess that over the past few years I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I've almost reached the regrettable, regret, regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order, quote unquote, than to justice. And then he writes, though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, which is what they call him in the newspaper article, that's too extreme. He says, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist? For love, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, he quotes the Sermon on the Mount. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos, the Old Testament prophet, also in our Bibles, an extremist for justice? Quotes Amos, chapter 5, I believe. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And then he asks, will we be extremists for hate or for love? In Rwanda, it was the 90s, I think, 1990s, Hutu and Tutsi slaughter each other. Both sides claim to be Christians. They claim the mantle of Jesus Christ, and they are committing genocide in his name. And we could go around the world, and just it's so easy to multiply examples of this. Race relations in France and the UK, hands across the divide, is, is you know, about a UK issue. But think about all the populations of people the descendants of the populations on the receiving end of French or British imperialism who've come to live in the country that took them over generations ago. And now France has problems all the time. Race problems, ethnicity problems, 
descendants of Arabs from Algeria and Tunisia who are never feeling really integrated. Uh, South Asians in the UK, same problems. They, they, the result is tension. It's mutual suspicion, repression, even violence on numerous occasions. If you watch the news, you know this. And my point is that none of this was the Creator's intention. Not a bit of it. He didn't design human beings to behave that way. But here's the point. Alienation that grows out of sin mushrooms after the entrance of sin into His creation. It just becomes, it doesn't know any bounds. But the Bible tells us that new creation brings a horizontal uh, reconciliation as a result of vertical reconciliation. Let me say what I mean by, tell you what I mean by that. I think most of us appreciate the fact, if we're Christians at all, for five minutes, that the, the, the heart of the whole thing is, i got to get right with God. I'm wrong with God because of sin. Jesus pays the price for my sin on the cross, and I am reconciled. God reconciles me to Him if I accept that, you know, through, through obedience of faith, as Paul puts it. But that vertical reconciliation is not, the, that's not the whole story. Never has been. You can't read the Bible unless you're going to read it with blinders on that, it, you know, that filter out certain verses, which is not an uncommon phenomenon in the history of you know, biblical interpretation. There is a horizontal rela- uh, reconciliation. That is a reconciliation between people and among people and people groups, individuals and groups, that results directly from a true vertical reconciliation with God. In other words, we're not just reconciled with God, we're also reconciled with other people. At least that should be happening. We should be pursuing that. And so the biblical picture of new creation is this. When everything is reconciled to God, everyone is reconciled to one another. When everything is reconciled to the Almighty God, everyone will be reconciled to one another. At least the people that are in the new creation. And so the biblical storyline envisions the future harmony of peoples as an integral feature of God's future world, where He alone is King, He alone rules. And when He rules, everybody is unified with Him, and they are horizontally reconciled with one another. This vision of a world where all peoples, however much they may have otherized and demonized one another, that group is the scary group, that group is the bad group, they're the Hatfields, well, they're the McCoys, they're, you know, this nation, they're that nation, they're this race or that race or this ethnic. It just, we, we just cannot quit creating new things like that. It's what we do down here. Wonderful place, Earth. The problem is God, God isn't, doesn't leave that there. God has been saying since nearly the beginning of the Bible that we, no matter how much we otherize each other, can find mutual blessing in something that He will do. We can't do it, but He will do it. And it goes all the way back to the promise to Abraham. Genesis 12, 3, notice this. In you, He says to Abraham, someday in some way, it's cryptic at this point, but when we read on in the Bible, we begin to know this is talking about Jesus, who comes as the Jewish Messiah, the King of the Jews, but also will be the King of the cosmos, King of the world. In you, he says, all the families, or your version may say tribes, it kind of means kinships, not little nuclear families like we think of, but all of them will be blessed. When it's reiterated over in Genesis 22, 18, he says it this way, and your offspring, we know to be Jesus from Galatians 3, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. God didn't just look at it one people, the good guys. The problem is everybody thinks they're the good guys throughout history. 
They all get God and put him in their back pocket and do whatever they want and say, we're righteous, though. Everybody, America's doing that no different from anybody else. We got sinners here, too. Anybody? Amen? Amen. <laughs> amen. I mean, on the news, they're in here. I, here's one, right? He's still going to bless us all if we'll let him. And part of that blessing is that re, re, we recognize a kind of mutual blessedness that God is offering to everyone. Now, the lineage of Abraham, of course, is the nation of Israel that Isaiah, the prophet, will call God's light to the Gentiles. Two or three times he says Israel is supposed to be a light to the nations. And Isaiah is arguably the main prophet of the new creation that we've been talking about. In Isaiah, we, we see this foretelling of the day when all nations will finally come to what is called the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem. And the light that will illuminate the new Jerusalem emanates from the very glory of the Lord. This is all from Isaiah chapter 60. And as these nations come to that light, they will bring as tribute to the true Lord of the universe, Jesus the Lamb and God the Father. They will bring all the wealth and abundance of their respective nations to give it as tribute to the ruler of the new Jerusalem. And the whole place is lit up by the glory of God. I'm basically paraphrasing here some verses from Isaiah 60. Notice these excerpts from Isaiah 60. He's talking about the new Jerusalem, way off in the future, in the end times. Arise, shine, new Jerusalem, for your light has come. They're in darkness now with captivity, right? The context of exile, Babylonian exile in Isaiah. But he says, arise and shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising, then you shall see and be radiant, your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. The sun shall be no more your light by day. Does that sound familiar from a New Testament perspective? Nor the brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your glory will be, and God will be your glory. And guess what? That passage is picked up, it is fulfilled in John's vision of eternity, in the Revelation of John, in chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation, which is basically the Bible's concluding scene. It's picturing the end of, of everything, right? when, when time and space collapse into eternity, and the heavens and the earth, which are cursed by sin, are replaced with a new heavens and new earth where the curse is no longer. And, and, and people can act like God wants them to and serve Him. And that's what Isaiah is prophesying here. But notice the nations are a big part of this. Every time he talks about it, all these nations coming to the New Jerusalem. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and first, first earth had passed away. He says, I saw the holy city, verse 2, the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That evokes some of the stuff Daniel was talking about. We're the, the church is the bride of God, the bride of Christ. But notice as he expands on it in verse 22, still talking about the new Jerusalem, the church, coming down out of heaven to the new heavens, new earth. I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You don't need a temple where he's located. He's everywhere now, present with everybody. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it its light. That's exactly what Isaiah 60 says. It's almost a quotation from Isaiah 60. Then notice verse 24. To continue the um, harking back to Isaiah 60. By its light, by Jerusalem's light, will the nations walk. Not just Israel, but the nations. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. 
and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor or the wealth and produce and you know, culture of all the nations. Everybody is going to honor the real Lord of the universe, finally. Does that sound like a thing where a picture where it's just a bunch of individuals who don't even know each other and it doesn't really matter how they treat each other, right? As long as they got God. Or does it sound like shalom? Like everything in a giant web with God as the center or a wheel with God as the hub has, has come together. I, I, I would say clearly the latter. Revelation 22 says that even the tree of life is there, and its leaves are for what? The healing of the nations. You can see this kind of writing in the Apostle Paul, too. He routinely includes this human-to-human reconciliation as part and parcel of the gospel. Remember the dividing wall of hostility read about a minute ago. Well, here's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. If we just read that out of context, I think 90% of Americans would think, oh, good, I'm glad I can be reconciled. Problem is the context, it's got a bunch of second person plurals in it. It's y'all all the time. And he makes that clear here in verse 14. He himself is our peace who has brought the two groups or made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier. This is what the gospel does. It destroys the barrier between people. The dividing wall of hostility has been blown up at the cross and resurrection. He set aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, the, the law of the Jews, the, the law of Moses. His purpose was to create himself one new humanity out of the two and to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. This is a picture of people groups being reconciled by virtue of the gospel. Folks, my point is this. This is part of the gospel. You don't have the gospel if you don't have this part of it. If you're all vertical every time you read the Bible, you are ignoring scores and scores and scores of passages about the horizontal implications. What, was there one great command or two? Yeah, I think that's actually the right answer because it's kind of like one, but it has two parts. He's, he's asked the question, Jesus says, what is the great commandment? Love God. And then he says, and there is another like it. It's like the, the other side of the coin or the application is to love your neighbor as yourself. First John argues, actually, if you don't do the latter, you're not doing the former. Explicitly makes that argument. So there's always been this and this, always. Never been otherwise. That's what the fall messed up, that and that. We can't ignore this and just focus on that. And I want to tell you, the number of times Christians and churches in the name of Jesus have done that in, 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 in religious history, it's, I'd say most of the time, honestly. Because we don't want people messing with that other stuff. We want to just go to church and talk about spiritual stuff. Like the King of Kings and Lord of Lords doesn't care about the rest of the stuff he made. It's all spiritual. Spiritual is how you use it. Carnal is when you use it the wrong way. There's nothing wrong with the stuff. He, it's his idea. So we need to, it's, I, think, I think we have to train ourselves because we're not, this is not in the water in, in American evangelical history. It's not in the water of the news we hear. It's not in the water of my background religiously. I think I've got a lot of things I, I love and, and want to keep because they're biblical. And then there's some blind spots here and there. I think this is one of them. Or maybe everybody was saying, I wasn't listening. I'll maybe put it on me. Um, how many times have we quoted Galatians 3 to prove baptism is essential? I think it shows, shows that. But look what the context of Galatians 3 is. 
or the rest of the context. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God, children of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I, the Bible seems to teach that if, you don't, if you're not baptized into Christ, you really haven't put him on. You go from death to life, like they're crossing the Red Sea. Slavery to freedom. That's the language Paul uses in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 10. But he doesn't stop there. He's actually saying that to say this. By virtue of your being baptized into Christ and becoming a Christian and wearing Jesus, putting him on, in that world, your reality now is, is such that there is neither a Jew nor Greek. These old ethnic divisions, they've been eclipsed. They've been transcended. There is neither slave nor free, which would be a socioeconomic division, just like Jew-Greek is an ethnic or racial division. There's no male or female. Here's his point. You're all one in Christ. And notice this. What's it go back to? Hmm? The promise to Abraham. He's saying all we're doing here is talking about the, the framework of the Bible. The entire storyline. If you're Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to that promise, which said in Christ, in his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. God's kingdom, God's new creation already arrived with Jesus Christ in the resurrection in some sense. Not in the consummate fullest sense, but it's here in some ways. And if we are in Christ, then new creation is our new way of living. So I want to ask finally this question, the kind of more practical question, at least how to, how to think about it. There'll be a million practical answers. They'll vary in different lives, in different situations, in different times and places. But how then can we be ministers of human-to-human -human reconciliation? How can we pursue that in a practical, concrete way? Because 2 Corinthians 5.18 says that God reconciled us to Himself through Christ, but then He gave us this ministry of reconciliation. How can we be ministers of this kind of human-to-human -human reconciliation? Since that's our topic today. Well, the first answer I would say is we have to be people who are opportunistic. Where we have influence or opportunity, we should work toward those kinds of, for lack of a better term, social, people, people, that's what social means, having to do with people, society, social ends that are associated with harmony and justice, integration, not disintegration, peace, not conflict. Have you ever noticed that Jesus begins and ends? That is, he frameworks his entire ministry with a mandate to address the problem of human alienation. It's not the only thing he talks about, but he certainly talks about it at the beginning and the end. Let me tell you what I mean. So let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount, one of the earliest and fullest orations of Jesus. And we see that this is the one frame, the beginning of this call to be involved in horizontal reconciliation. What are you doing to reconcile people horizontally? That is, to other people. Group to group, individual to individual. If you're a minister of that. In the Sermon on the Mount of all places, Jesus says this. It's like thing three or four, he says. I don't remember which order, but you probably do. It doesn't matter. If it makes the Beatitudes, it's already something to make the Sermon on the Mount. If it makes the Beatitudes, that's the, the core, that's the cream of the cream. It's, at the very, it's kind of the beginning. This is what he's teaching. This is what the kingdom looks like. This is why I'm here. Blessed are the peacemakers. Not peace lovers, peace hopers, peace wishers. Yeah, who doesn't love peace? What are you doing about it? Peacemakers. 
They shall be called sons of God. It reflects the very character of God. That's the beginning of his ministry. And then remember that presentation of the final judgment from Jesus. And after the parable of the talents and the parable of the wise and foolish virgins at the wedding, he then just goes straight into an actual oration about the final judgment. And he says, basically, it's going to be a scene where I'm dividing all humanity. This is Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. All humanity will be divided into two camps. Those headed for, quote, the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, or, quote, the other camp, the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's what he says. Wow. Stakes are fairly high. What are the criteria that he lists for determining which camp a person ends up in? He lists several things, many of which are the kinds of things that we would call social concerns, things that social workers work in, human need, poverty, somebody's in jail, you go visit them, they're sick, you visit them, and then this one. Why do we get in, Jesus? Say the sheep on the good side. He says, because I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Now, it'd be easier to run through this verse and go, oh, strangers, okay, that's kind of hard because, you know, stranger danger and all that. I don't know them. It's awkward. It's even a little worse than that, demanding-wise, because the word stranger, you may have a version that translates some other way. It's the Greek word xenos, from which we get xenophobia. And he's basically saying, you better have the opposite of xenophobia. Of course there are strangers who speak your language, live in a different neighborhood, look like you, think like you, you think of not as other is like they're one of you, you just haven't met them yet. This is bigger than that. This harks back to Leviticus 19, where he says, Israel, love God, and then love your, be ye holy as I'm holy, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And, and one of the applications given two times in Leviticus 19 is, love the immigrant, the foreigner who is in your midst, because you were that and I loved you. This is, this is endemic to being godly. This is like the warp and woof of what it means to follow Jesus. This is some peripheral thing. So resist the temptation. I know a lot of people are uncomfortable right now. I am. Uh, Sermon on the Mount makes me uncomfortable every time I read it, by the way. So does this passage. But this is, he says this is the basis, or part of the basis, for whether you're doing what he wants you to do. So we need to be people who develop eyes to see these problems of human alienation. It's very possible to go through our life and just blind ourselves by distraction, by staying in one little area, only wanting to talk about one kind of thing, only reading one part of the news, uh, only ever talking to anybody who agrees with you down the line almost on everything. You can learn to be blind. You can blind yourself. We need to see, develop eyes to see these problems of human alienation. And those eyes would look like what? They'd look like the eyes of Jesus. Can we see the world through the eyes of Jesus? Did he just look the other way or shrug his shoulders as if to say, you know, that's just the way the world is? No, he continually showed us a different world was possible and sought to bring reconciliation where there was conflict. Let me give you some concrete examples from the career of Jesus, the ministry. So let's talk about racial and ethnic alienation. This centuries-long rift between Samaritan and Jew, which was as deep and... uh, Conflictual as about anyone we could list today. We see here the story Jesus tells about a a good Samaritan, even though Jesus is a Jew. A good Samaritan was an oxymoron for many Jews. 
And this Samaritan shows compassion for a man whom his people would have regarded as other, as dirty, as defiled, as theologically off base. And yet this Samaritan has pity on him, gets off, to his, gets off his animal, goes to attend to him with active concern, with material aid. He thereby practices the second great commandment, which was supposed to be the hallmark of Judaism. Only the priest, the Jewish priest and the Jewish Levite, looked the other way. We have to have eyes to see. You've got to be intentional about that. There's every kind of dynamic and impulse out there trying to keep you in your cubbyhole, your silo, speaking your language to your people. And here's God saying, everybody's your people. The question, remember, there is, who is my neighbor? And Jesus casts the net as far as, as a Jew could think, beyond it. He crashes the barrier and says, basically, everybody's your neighbor. Anybody made in the image of God. What about political division? Man. I've never lived in a time that was more politically divided. Maybe 1968, Vietnam War, I don't know. That, that's a big one, you know, historic. But I don't remember it. I was seven years old. I just wanted to be Roman Gabriel and play for the Los Angeles Rams. I have no idea why. That was my team when I was a kid. Um, political division. What does Jesus say about that? Well, let me just say this. He calls into his inmost circle, the 12, both an employee of the foreign pagan government that was occupying Israel. That would be Matthew. He worked for Rome, taxing Israelites unjustly frequently, backed up with Roman legions and Roman force. He's one of the twelve, and he also brought in, Jesus did, Simon the Zealot, who is a freedom fighter, a man formerly committed to terrorism, the Romans would have called it, Violent insurrection against the government. That's what, that's what the Canaanians or the, or the zealots did. And he's got them coexisting in the same group. It's not a group of 5,000 where they never run into you. This is 12 people. They're camping out together. They're, they're sleeping in the same place on the side of the road. They're ministering together. How does that happen? And let's bring it closer to home. What about divisions within families? What about bitterness between old friends? Well, rather than insisting on our way or our view, Jesus shows us the path of Golgotha, the way of self-emptying, the way of seeing the other person's viewpoint, of getting in their shoes, empathy, compassion. And guess what? He calls us to follow. He says, take up your cross. You get up on the cross in effect, every day in every individual micro-alienation. And I think at bottom we've got to recognize that the core problem underneath all of this social alienation between people groups is the individual's heart. It's my heart. It's your heart. It's my character and my habits. It's your character and your habits. So we, in our relationships with other people, have to learn to choose, to practice listening, and not always preaching. i got a big problem with that. I don't just mean here. But it's hard to listen while I'm talking. There's actually a line in a YouTube song, it's hard to listen while you preach. It's excellent. I'm very convicted by that. 
But we got to, you know, in our relationships, what about when you're thinking about politics and stuff like that? Somebody's got a totally different take. Are you listening ever? You ever willing to have somebody that you totally disagree with say something? That would go light years toward reconciliation. We've got to choose forgiveness rather than retaliation. And we've got to embrace the way of love and self-giving rather than fear and control. Thank you. The gospel is as big as you want to imagine it to be. God is reconciling all things. Behold, what's he say? I am making all things new. And he says, behold, for a reason. What's behold mean? Look. Look. We've got to train ourselves to see it, folks, and not read the Bible with blinders on or filters on that get all that out of there and get back to whatever we heard forever. This is big. And if the church can model this, think of, we would be a magnet to our community that's starving for harmony and reconciliation because sin has sown alienation up one side and down the other. Thanks for your attention.